Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Lee Ann Fennell, Max Pam Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. We will discuss her new book, Slices and Lumps, Division and Aggregation in Law and Life, which is published by the University of Chicago Press. So welcome to the show, Lee. Thanks, and thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad to have you on. Um, and I really appreciate you sending me a copy of your book. I, I enjoyed reading it very much. Uh, you have a distinctive sense of humor, and the examples were quite amusing in many cases. Thank you. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could start by talking about the concept of lumpiness, which it, it, it plays a huge role in the story you're telling in the book. And I think maybe it would be helpful for listeners to kind of get a sense of what you mean by lumpiness and why lumpiness is so important to the way we think about the world and the way we make decisions in the world. Okay, sure. So one way of thinking about lumpiness is thinking about times when you need all of something or you need uh, to assemble things in a particular way in order to get something that's valuable. And so one of the most common examples that's given is a bridge. Uh, If you have the chasm that you need to get across, you really have to have the whole bridge or it just isn't actually a bridge at all. And so that's a very intuitive idea. And if you start looking around, you may find that there are a lot of things in your life that you encounter, you know, either in your personal life or that you see in your work or that you see out in society that have a characteristic like that, where you aren't able to really get what you need unless you have a certain amount, unless you're able to put things together in a certain way. And so this lines up with um, what economists call lumpy goods. Uh, the idea that there is some kind of discontinuity, that you don't get a lot of value until you're able to assemble something together. So that's one facet of lumpiness. There's also another facet, which is uh, the idea that sometimes you get something that is difficult to divide. Okay, so in my bridge example, you wanted the whole bridge. That's an instance of lumpy demand. You want the entire bridge. Sometimes you get something that's all in one lump and you wish you could divide it up in a different way. Okay, so that, that's an instance where the lumpiness is kind of an issue or a problem. You want to find ways to reconfigure or divide. So for example, you might not want a car all the time. Um, you might not want to commit to that. You might want just slices of a car. Uh, You might not want a dog all the time. Um, You might not want any number of different assets to have to have them all the time. It might be sort of too lumpy to purchase the entire thing. Uh, Similarly, you might not want a job that's like 70 hours a week. It's it's too much. You would like to have less of it and be paid less. Um, So Part of what I'm talking about in the book are problems of aggregation, like the bridge, where you want to put together something that that you need a lot of or you need a certain amount of in order for it to be valuable. And then in other cases, we're looking at at instances where it's more a problem of lumpy supply. You have something that comes in a lump and you wish you could do uh, something to divide it up or to get a different amount of it. So are are there different kinds of lumpiness 
or different ways in which things can be lumpy or is like everything pretty much lumpy in in the same way um so so i think uh things can be lumpy in different ways um one type of lumpiness is sometimes referred to as a single step good um, and the reason it's called that is if you were to draw kind of a graph to show how you're getting value from the good, it would just be this flat line up until you have all the pieces. And then suddenly it all kind of jumps up in a single step. Okay, so the bridge is like this. If we think about having segments of the bridge and you're adding them um, to try to get across this gap, I, I don't think this is really how bridge engineering works. But <laughs> bits of bridge on until you get to the other side. Um, it, it's a huge jump up in the value of the bridge once you complete it. It's, it's worth almost nothing. You know, maybe it's interesting urban art, maybe you know, it's sort of an interesting sculpture to have, but it's not really a bridge until you get the last bit and then the value jumps up all at once. But then it also plateaus in that it doesn't really help to keep adding more and more bridge segments once you're already across. Uh, just sort of laying them out on the flat ground is not really helpful. It's not really giving you any more increasing value. So that's an instance where um, if you think about it in a, in a very simple way, it's a single step. Um, having enough votes to win an election, if it's sort of a, a winner-take-all kind of contest uh, and you need a majority, um, it, it's something that you're going to reach the threshold or you're not going to reach it. So those are single-step goods. Um, you can have things that are different than that where you start to gain value as you get more of something, but it's not a smooth linear progression where it's kind of, you get a little, you know, you get one unit more and you get one unit more of utility out of it. It is often the case that we have things that follow like a kind of an S-curve pattern um, where it takes a while to kind of get enough of something for it to become valuable. So a lot of uh, collective social goods, even social movements may be like this. Um, you might think about urban areas um, that, are, that are trying to put together uh, some complementary uses to make a, maybe a downtown area more vibrant. Um, you know, you add the first uh, little shop or whatever, it doesn't really do much good. Uh, but as you add more and more, it starts to have kind of an increasing effect. So, so the marginal impact of adding more and more starts to be more and more so that it's kind of like you're, you start to um, move up at, at a higher rate. And then at some point, you reach a point where you kind of start to level off. And so that's something that, that I also, you know, there's different definitions of how exactly people think about lumpy goods. But in my book, I talk about those kinds of phenomena as also being uh, an aspect of lumpiness in that you're still, uh, it still matters a great deal how you're able to put things together. You're still able to get a, a much different amount of value depending on whether you have uh, a lot. It's not scaling linearly to how much you have. Um, there are discontinuities or there are places where you end up with, um, with, with a lot more uh, by virtue of just maybe adding a, a few more units of something, you end up with a lot more value. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it seems like broadly speaking, there's sort of like two big picture problems you're addressing. One in which it's hard to aggregate enough lumps together to kind of get the full value of the full social value or whatever kind of value of the good in its, you know, in its fully realized state. And then the other kind of problem is sort of disaggregating the goods into the consumption size that 
that people actually want to consume so that it's not like too much for, for what they need under the circumstances. Why are both of those hard? I mean, is this, is this in part entirely a, a transaction cost problem? Like what makes it so hard for us to sort of right size uh, goods and services and other kinds of experiences in the world? Yeah, so so sometimes there are actually some kind of technological constraint um, where you know it's actually hard to physically divide something up in a particular way. Um, more commonly, it's more an issue of getting everyone who holds some kind of stake, some kind of interest in that particular resource, to agree on how to how to reconfigure it. So this is where the two problems um, kind of share a similar pattern. If you're trying to assemble units of something, like maybe you're trying to assemble units, you know, acres of, of land to do some kind of a big redevelopment project, or you're trying to put together enough land for a highway or something like that, um, in, in those cases, you're trying to you're trying to put together these resources. And in order to do that, in order to get that whole assembly, you have to get cooperation. That's sort of the, the thing that you really need from the people who control those resources. So it becomes a problem in instances where each of the components that you need is unique. And so the owner effectively has a monopoly over that particular part of the puzzle. You're trying to put together the whole thing, and um, it's difficult to do that because you're having to assemble cooperation. There can be pulled-out problems. There can be all kinds of, of difficulties in getting the agreement. So it's often not so much a problem of it's hard to physically put the resources together. Sometimes that might be true, but it's often hard to get the right to put the resources together because there's someone who controls uh, access to it as a legal matter or as a practical matter, and their buy-in is necessary. And then the thing that also has to happen in addition to putting together everybody's cooperation is that you also have to decide how you're going to divide up the surplus from you know, gains that you're going to get from, from creating this more valuable assembly. Okay? And so that's part of the reason why it's difficult is that everyone perhaps wants more of the assembly surplus for themselves. And so it can be difficult. And you know, we see this all the time in settings like land assembly. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the justifications for eminent domain. Um, but the thing I want to say is that that kind of problem of putting things together, it can often share a common pattern with the problem, the other problem that you mentioned of um, dividing things up, you know, trying to split things up and right size them and put them, uh, divide them up in ways that would be more useful for people. And that problem too can also take the form of needing to get cooperation. It doesn't always take that form. Sometimes if you just have something and you completely own it, you know, I completely own a cake. I can, I can slice it up and give people slices and that's not a problem. Um, but if we have a group of people who co-own something and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we're tenants in common, you know, wh whatever kind of legal structure we have, um, we all have rights in it and we have to essentially agree on how we're going to divide it up. And that presents the same kinds of problems. If everyone's cooperation is required, um, then assembling that is going to be very difficult. And then figuring out how to divide up the surplus that we get from doing that reconfiguration, again, 
um, that's part of the challenge of getting people to agree is, you know, what's it, what's it to me, you know, what are you going to give me in exchange for that? Um, so we can see this also in contexts like jobs. So I mentioned before, you know, some people have jobs that are lumpy. Uh, they would like to work um, less hours and get less pay. Well, it turns out that it's not just that person, that employee who is kind of in the picture. There's also uh, their employer um, who has to also sign off on this change. And um, so first of all, there may be a question of whether it's actually valuable for both parties to do this. And it may not always be. So that, that, that itself is an issue both for dividing things or even for assembling things. We don't always know uh, in either of those cases whether we're going to get to something that's more valuable. We're kind of maybe trying to test that out by getting people to agree and seeing if they can agree. But there are many reasons that people might be strategic and might not agree. Uh, because of their effort to get more of the surplus from the reconfiguration that, that that's going to come about. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, it struck me as being a really nice illustration of sort of how the commons problem works in practice in a way that kind of abstracted it while still making the problem actually weirdly kind of more conceptually concrete in the sense that the abstraction is actually easier in some ways to work your head around sort of like what the nature of the coordination problem was and why reaching the socially optimal consensus could be so difficult in some circumstances. Yes, I think that's right. And one of the things that I try to bring out in the book is that it can matter when you have a collective action problem uh, it can matter whether the sort of social goal that you're working for has some kind of a, of a lumpy form uh, or whether it is instead kind of kind of linear in nature. Um, so sometimes we're dealing with a problem where we you know, need to fund, uh, you know, we need to do something that's sort of an all or nothing prop proposition, like, um, like fund the lighthouse or we want to uh, maybe, maybe we want to assemble um, enough cooperation to keep some kind of animal population from collapsing or whatever. There's a critical threshold that's involved and kind of thinking about how to solve those problems where it matters a lot getting to those thresholds. And then it becomes important who exactly has to agree to make this happen. Um, is it everyone? Is it particular people? Do we need all of some set of particular people? And kind of thinking about what the participation requirements are, who has to agree, uh, I think really helps to, helps to transform how we think about uh, how we think about collective action problems, and it highlights that there can be different shapes that those can take uh, depending on kind of kind of the shape of, of the problem that we're trying to solve. Mm. Well, so I, I I mostly teach intellectual property classes, and I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to reflect a little bit on the sort of way you think the kind of lumps and slices can help us think about intellectual property, because a lot of the things you've said so far, I think are kind of familiar from a physical property or perhaps even more so like a real property type standpoint. But like, to, to what extent do you think this is a useful way of thinking about the kinds of aggregation and coordination problems we can see in an intangible intellectual property context. Right. So I think that I think there there are ways that that these ideas cash out for intellectual property. So one example um, that 
that's uh, a pretty a pretty basic and much discussed one is patents, right? If you need to if you need to manufacture some product and you need patent licenses, you need to put together a certain set of patent licenses to be able to uh, make your product, to, to sell your product. Uh, you may run into problems with getting hold of those licenses and being able to assemble them together. There's, you know, again, the, the much discussed kind of, you know, uh, pejorative label of, of troll um, that maybe there might be someone who holds control over some crucial license. Um, and they are not willing and they, they want to shut down your entire product because they hold a crucial piece of it. So uh, having all the things that you need, all the intellectual property rights that you need to achieve your goal, to, to make the thing you want to make, um, that's a lot like putting together the segments of a bridge. And so there may be ways in which uh, these problems work out or get solved in the real world uh, that, that you know, don't, don't create... Um, they don't always create problems, but the shape of the, of the structure of the challenge is similar. If there are unique things that you have to put together and each is held by someone who has an effective monopoly over it, then you can run into assembly problems. Um, the, the other thing that, the other way that I think uh, we can see lumpiness coming into play very easily with intellectual property is when we think about creating creative goods that are kind of like all or nothing propositions. Um, once you have created something, it is non-rival. It can be enjoyed by everybody. And so there's kind of this way in which there, there's, a, there's a lumpiness kind of inherent in that. But once the thing is there, uh, it's sort of there for everyone. And this generates kind of well-known problems in trying to figure out the best structure for creating an incentive for that, that thing, that lumpy thing to exist. Um, and it requires uh, thinking about how we want, how we want to uh, either meter access to it or, or find out some other structure that we can use to get the creator to do that, to, to create that lumpy, that lumpy good. And one of the ways in which the non-rival aspect of it plays in is that we don't have the kind of natural way of dividing up um, the way that we're going to way that we're going to fund something by just charging people for the part that they're actually consuming in the way that we would if we were talking about you know how are we going to get how are we going to fund um, this this program of uh, harvesting berries or something like that we're going to harvest berries. For people to eat, how are we going to how are we going to finance that? Well, it's it's pretty obvious we're going to you know sell the berries, and that's going to provide kind of a, a very easy way of uh, collecting money to fund it. Um, we don't have something that's like that. We don't have a well segmented um, kind of metering device like that. Then we have to construct something else. Um, and so the book talks a little bit. I, I don't I don't do a lot of intellectual property, but I hope that it kind of has enough ideas there that people who really do intellectual property can pick up on them and think about ways that these features and this structure uh, informs the way that intellectual property works. 
Yeah, I can think of someone who will definitely be taking up that project. Excellent. Um, and and I will tell you that my students really struggle with this these kinds of public goods concepts, and I think that this metaphor might be really helpful for them in conceptualizing what's going on and why this is a problem. You know, because when it, I, when you try to put it in really abstract terms, it's very difficult, I find, for them to wrap their heads around. But I think perhaps this will make it more concrete for them. Yes. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> one of the one of the moves you made in the book that I found kind of unexpected, but also really compelling and interesting was like some of these ideas are things that I feel like are kind of familiar, but in a different language and a different form from what I've heard in other kinds of like property contexts. But then you start talking about the concept of lumpiness in all of these contexts that I wasn't expecting at all, including sort of in people's personal lives and personal choices. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think the concept of kind of lumpiness and disaggregation or slicing can help people both understand their choice making better and also maybe think about making better choices. Right. So Part of the book talks about what I call intrapersonal dilemmas, which is dilemmas among your yourselves, your various temporal selves. And often we are trying to achieve, people are trying to achieve a, a goal that has some kind of a lumpy characteristic to it, some kind of a step function to it in, in many cases. Uh, yeah, maybe we want to write a book or we want to uh, uh, meet some particular fitness target or something else like that. And in order to do that, we have to get enough cooperation from enough of our temporal selves. And putting together that cooperation is a problem that has some of the same features as putting together the segments of a bridge. So we have to think about what it will what it will work best in terms of getting that kind of buy-in from the different selves who have to cooperate. Um, and it has in common with other kinds of collective action problems among different people that it can matter how we divide up the various contributions. So even if we're talking about a collective action problem among different people, um, they're trying to figure out how to achieve some particular kind of goal. Uh, having a way of segmenting the contributions that's a, that they're going to make to that goal can be can be really important because it sort of makes it visible. It provides a way to kind of meter what they're what they're putting in and so on. Um, some of the examples I use, if, if people are, um, you know, maybe they're they're all sharing some food of some kind. If it's segmented in a really nice way. That might provide a very clear, easy kind of focal point about how to divide that up. Uh, so if we then take that into the realm of uh, intrapersonal dilemmas, um, one thing that you might want to try to do is divide up, say, a task or whatever kind of burden it is that you're trying to spread over time and give each uh, self a, an identifiable piece of that. Um, so thinking about how to break up segments of time, how to break up tasks, um, all of these things, I think, are, are related to this problem that, um, you know, you're having to make decisions constantly in real time uh, over a long span of time. And the cumulative effect of those 
is going to determine whether you do or don't achieve some lumpy goal. Um, so the same kinds of, of issues that we see of trying to get cooperation, um, to some extent, figuring out, you know, how, how do you divide up the surplus? You know, maybe, maybe it's in all of your temporal selves' interest to achieve this goal. Uh, but, you know, some of them maybe don't have to participate in order for it to be achieved. So if it's writing a paper, some of them can take time off, but just not all of them. So kind of thinking about how to segment things out and how to, how to make that happen becomes really important. Um, some of the other contexts that I talk about uh, that relate a bit to these interpersonal dilemmas, um, one of them is, is sort of personal finance realm, like thinking about how to, how to break up um, money in particular ways. Uh, there has been a, a big literature on mental accounting. Um, what the book tries to do is think about ways that lumpiness might matter when we're even just thinking about budgeting or, or things like that. Uh, the way in which different uh, income streams or different savings are segmented out or divided up could make a difference in being able to achieve whatever financial goals you might have. So, so to what extent do you think lumpiness is a useful tool? The concept of lumpiness could be a useful tool for policymakers in thinking about sort of regulation and incentives. Uh, in relation to different kinds of policy choices that they're making and kind of better achieving policy outcomes. Right. So I, th I think it matters in, in quite a few ways. Um, one way that it might matter is that sometimes you don't need um, for your policy push or for whatever incentive you're giving people to do the right thing or disincentive to not do the wrong thing. Sometimes a small um, push in that direction may be enough if we're talking about a choice that is relatively lumpy or relatively binary. So if people are simply deciding, am I going to do this thing or not do this thing? Um, it might be that, that a small nudge in that direction, um, and I don't, I don't really mean nudge in, in a behavioral <laughs> economic sense, but, but, but a, a policy tool that maybe has a... Uh, a, a, a small impact or makes it slightly easier to do the right thing could potentially be enough. Um, so one of the examples I give in the book is just the idea of choosing to go to a festival. Okay, so this is an example. Uh, Carol Rose has talked about the example of festivals being an area where there's increasing return to participation. And um, so maybe, you know, at least up to a point, we want people to go to festivals. If we think about that as kind of a binary on-off choice, um, it might not be the case that you need to, you know, completely uh, pay someone for all of the positive externalities that they generate at the festival. Um, and that's because they are likely to have some of their own reasons for wanting to go. They're likely to get some reciprocal benefits. Um, but if you have some small policy intervention, like, I don't know, the transportation is a little bit easier or something like that, then that might be enough to get people to do something that has positive spillovers. Once they reach the threshold of it being worth it for their own reasons, then uh, they, they will go ahead and do it, um, even if it has positive spillovers on, on, other, on other parties. Um, the other way, a few other ways we might think about about policy kind of learning from lumpiness is just the fact that it seems that people like um, people like lump sums. Um, that there's some evidence of that. 
and kind of thinking about the way in which having a larger amount of, of something might be disproportionately valuable. So one of the puzzles that the that other people have talked about and that the, the book takes up is, you know, why do people play lotteries? Um, lotteries are losing bets, um, almost always at least, uh, lo losing bets for people, and yet they play them. And it can be a little bit puzzling why that would be. And one explanation that others have, have, have raised, but it really resonates with me and it fits with this lumpiness story, is that sometimes having a larger sum of money, like getting a big chunk of money all at once, could be transformative to your life. And it could make a, a disproportionately larger difference than saving up all those little increments that you would have otherwise spent on the lottery ticket. And this ends up having some interesting policy implications. Um, there's already been some experimentation with trying to incentivize behaviors, not with payments, but with, with lotteries, um, on, on the theory that maybe having a, a chance at a lottery might actually be more valuable in a way uh, than having some small increment of money. The idea of uh, prize-linked savings accounts is starting to catch on where um, people are incentivized to save uh, by being entered in a lottery uh, rather than by being incentivized by getting what would typically be a relatively small amount of interest on, on their savings. So finding places where lumps matter to people, identifying those places, and then seeing uh, how we might be able to use that to, to be able to achieve policy objectives um, with less cost and with more benefits, I think, is, is a very important direction for policy. So in relation to the lottery example in particular, I found your, your analogy to insurance to be initially counterintuitive, but then really quite clever. And I wonder if you could just mention that briefly. Sure. So both... Um, insurance and lotteries are about risk. And so it might seem strange, um, potentially, that people would maybe play the lottery, which is taking on more risk, and then at the same time also want to have insurance, which is about shedding risk. And it can kind of be consistent if we think about um, there being different levels of wealth that have dramatically different consequences for people. So maybe falling below some, some particular level is especially bad, and it's worth insuring against that. Reaching some relatively high level might be very advantageous, um, and so that would explain playing the lottery. Uh, and the sort of small payments that you're making in, in, in the current state of the world might be uh, sensible in both cases, depending on exactly how your utility function uh, looks. Um, mm -hmm. one, one, way to, one way to think about the uh, way that both of these operate is that we're basically kind of slicing by states of the world. Okay, So if you think about all the things that, uh, that winning the lottery would get for you, this, this whole sort of package, this, this, if you think about it as a sack of really great stuff, um, well, you know, you can't afford the sack. You don't have enough money. Uh, but you have enough money to place that sack in one state of the world that could come about. And so people might choose to do that. Um, when we think about insurance, it's kind of similar. We're wanting to put resources in particular states of the world that we think will benefit from having more resources. So 
in the insurance context, uh, it's sort of looking down all these possible futures and seeing that if you go down some of the paths, you're going to see uh, negative events, negative shocks, where having more money would be helpful. Um, you know, if your house burns down and you need to rebuild it, then having money in that state, in the state of the world is going to be more valuable. So insurance allows you to kind of channel uh, money into particularly important states of the world, where, into states of the world where it's particularly important to have more money. Um, the lottery allows you to kind of concentrate uh, a lot of wealth in a very unlikely state of the world, but you may have something that, that's, that's quite worthwhile in that one state of the world, and it allows you to um, have, an, have an affordable path, an affordable possible path uh, to, to achieving it. Mm. Lucy, you also spend some time talking about sort of lumpiness in the context of legal services. I wonder if just briefly you could you could talk about how you think – because that's a context that I think will be familiar to a lot of listeners. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think lumpiness kind of plays out in the way that we sort of do the business of law. Okay, so are, are you thinking in the in terms of uh, what lawyers do in, in their jobs, or is this more kind of about how we how we formulate well, laws? Well, I mean, in, in particular, it, it struck me that it was a, a really interesting explanation for sort of why the market for legal services seems to be so sticky on certain kinds of forms and to offer so little flexibility in a lot of contexts for people to sort of approach the practice of law in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's there's a few different ways that lumpiness kind of intersects with the legal profession. Um, certainly, we can think about the way that it intersects with legal doctrines and the way that it uh, might affect the options that are out there. So I, I guess uh, maybe, maybe one way of getting at the question is to think about places where we see standardized forms that are um, limited in number. So this is the numerous clauses idea uh, from, from property law um, and what it is that causes, causes that to be. Okay, so, of course, there's, uh, this has been something that's been studied by property scholars, and there's explanations that are out there. Um, one way of thinking about having a particular set of limited forms is that there may be some fixed costs, some sort of high costs to uh, understanding each of these forms and to regulating around each of these forms, and having a relatively small number of them may be helpful in uh, in being able to have all that apparatus surrounding each one uh, doesn't mean that we have the right number of forms. And part of what the book is pushing towards is saying, look, we shouldn't assume that the lumps that we have, if we have a limited slate of choices, we shouldn't assume that those are all the choices that we need. Um, we should always be questioning that. Uh, sometimes it is the case that there are some higher fixed costs, which form a type of, of, of lumpiness in that you must be able to cover that fixed cost to have each uh, new variety of thing. Um, but sometimes the fixed forms that we have are kind of an artifact of the past, and there may be new ways to divide things up that would add real value. And so part of the message of the book is that we shouldn't just take lumps as we find them. We should always question the lump and ask whether there's a different way to arrange things, whether a different kind of configuration 
would be more valuable and how could we innovate towards that? Awesome. Well, Lee, thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation and congratulations on the book. Uh, I thought it was great and I hope people will check it out because we only talked about a tiny fraction of, of what's in there. Well, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun for me. Chicken livers, 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 steak, pork chops, 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 pork, chicken livers, 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 steak, pork chops, pork chops, pork chops, pork chops, pork chops, pork chops. Pork chops, pork, chicken livers, 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 steak, beer, ketchup, horseradish, bananas, fried rice, chunky peanut butter. Well, that was a sumptuous meal, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs>